I was thinking that you and I are really similar, I think, I believe, having <laughs> listened to lots of Trees of Crowds, in that I think that you are really passionate about the natural world and you want to go and find out stuff, don't you? I try to, sometimes. I feel like I'm being interviewed now. <laughs> so you find people who you are interested in and mm-hmm. want to talk to. So you do a podcast so you can Meet g- people. get to them. I, yeah. don't ha- I don't have any friends, so I've got to put a microphone <laughs> in front of people to make them be my friends. Well, not to meet them, but to find out what they think about things, I suppose. And I think that's what I do with art. It's like a currency, isn't it? Mm-hmm. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy, her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome back to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. From explorers of the Arctic to those for whom painting's cathartic. I get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. This week, I headed down to Brighton, which, if a survey from 2020 is to be believed, is the place in the UK where you're most likely to be mobbed by a seagull. Take that, Scarborough. But I wasn't there for the seagulls. Rather, penguins, puffins, and perhaps even polar bears. I went to talk to artist and explorer Beatrice von Preussen. Here in the UK, Bee has worked with the likes of the Battersea Park Children's Zoo, the Natural History Museum and the Sussex Wildlife Trust, helping to inspire children and indeed their parents to go out and explore the world around them. And taking a spoonful of her own medicine, she has explored both North and South Poles, armed purely with pencils and in search of printing presses. So, without further ado, this is Trees A Crowd and this is Beatrice von Preussen. Where were you a child? Where did you grow up? Um, in Somerset. Where in Somerset? Uh, near Yeovil. Lovely. And we had a massive garden and we were surrounded by fields and woods and we were left to our own devices most of the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we spent a lot of time roaming and doing awful things like blowing stuff up and <laughs> blowing up living things or like no, sort no, of no, no, no. landworks and the like no sort of rocks and things we were mad keen on french bangers most of our <laughs> lives were dedicated <laughs> to saving up money <laughs> um for french bangers and then going and buying them on holiday and smuggling them back and then blowing things up we talked about it all year so other than exploding things and sort of exploring and having space mm. to go in Rome, what was it about the Somerset countryside that was inspiring? Was it the, the big things like the wide vistas, like the Mendips and the Quantocks and the... No, I don't think it was the countryside that was inspiring. I think that you're just born with it. You're, you know, like they say, you're a dreamer mm-hmm. to children who are apparently not paying attention, but they are paying attention to some ants sure. or something. So was it ants? Was it little things? It was little things, yes. Well, I think it's just what I had access to. So snails, love a snail, Mm -hmm. and mice. We had quite a lot of mice in our house. (laughs) Um, And we had a cat who loved to catch mice and bring them to us alive. Mm -hmm. 
And cat's name? Posey Gray. Great. Burmese. Lived to 21. Congratulations. She was great. I still miss her. So she used to bring us these mice, usually when we were in bed. And um, I was just so fascinated that they were just going about their own lives in the hedge. And that was all going on unseen and unnoticed by loads of people. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that has stayed with me and in my all sorts of work and in my art, I just like to bring to people's attention the things which are often unseen. Hidden worlds. Yeah. And they just make people go, oh. There was, um, on your Instagram page, there was some microscope photos of uh, seaweed. Oh, yeah. And you found sort of eggs and little spiders. Yes. And all loaded yes. Things. We are so busy just doing our lives and not noticing. Mm-hmm. And all around us is incredible nature doing its incredible thing. Do you think that people started to notice it during lockdown? People stopped a bit more and had a smaller surface area to explore? Yes. I am very keen on seeing the same things over and over again Mm -hmm. and the differences. Like what children are supposed to be doing at forest school. The whole point is to go back to one place again and again and again. So you're building a relationship with your environment. And I think that lockdown made everyone do that, exactly. So you teach at a forest school now? It's one of the many, many facets that you do or help out at. <laughs> yes, I don't actually at the moment, but it's something I would like to continue doing sure. with the Sussex Wildlife Trust. And that um, when you've got small children and you are taking them back to the same place, you can see them building that relationship mm-hmm. with some trees and some mud. And um, it's absolutely incredible. It's amazing, with three-year-olds, things are so clear. Mm-hmm. You can see them become more confident and um, explore further over time. What? So in between French bangers and forest school, which is probably at least two years, where did you go? What did you, what's your journey? How, when did you want to become an artist? Are you an artist? When did you want to become an explorer? Are you an explorer? Oh, that's the question. What I don't know you? if I'm an explorer. So I think that I always loved nature and the natural world Mm -hmm. and I was always an artist and I think that I realised when I was quite young that those were the paths that I wanted to follow and the sort of strings that I wanted to not let go of Mm -hmm. and it's very difficult when you're a child to keep hold of those things that are important to you because school just tries to kind of get rid of all of those things I think and specifically art and science are separated Mm -hmm. whereas actually I think that art and science should be next to one another and entwined combined it's the one thing that's always interested me is uh, scientist explorers like Darwin or whoever people who went off to explore new lands for the first Mm. time either needed to be able to draw themselves Mm. because if they collected specimens chances are they wouldn't survive getting back to the mainland yeah I mean, there's the story of all the Galapagos turtles. We never ended up with a specimen because they were too tasty. So on the voyage back, they were always eaten. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was doing a bit of research into, what's his name, Conrad Martins, who was Darwin's artist for the mm. second half of his Beagle voyage. And so most of the, the illustrative records that we've got of Darwin's Origin of the Species research was drawn by Martins. Yeah. And it's quite amazing. So in terms of your journeys as resident artist up to Svalbard and yeah. down to Deception Island... Were you there as a documenter, a documentarian? Is that a word? <laughs> or were you there as an outreach project? Why, why, why were you an artist 
being taken to places that are normally the realms of either the madman, the scientist, or the explorer? Well, from my pond in Somerset, I really loved hanging around looking at newts and tadpoles. Mm -hmm. So they are the things which I still think are just so incredible. They just kind of personify the amazingness of nature. How can a tadpole just turn into a frog? And um, I, I, I would recommend anyone who's not watched the Hey Dougie episode on tadpoles <laughs> to seek it out on iPlayer right now. It's quite incredible. Um, specifically, newts and not frogs? Uh, no, no. Okay. Any, Any kind of amphibian. Yeah. Great. But in my pond, I had great crested newts. And, Wonderful. And snakes. And that was my world. And I loved studying them. And then... Fast forward 15 years and I was working as a prop maker and I was learning etching on the side. Are we still in Somerset here? No, no, now we're, we're in Brighton. Okay. After university. You went to university in Brighton? Yep. Studied? Plastics and metalwork. Oh, cool. So I was making props for um, shop windows and uh-huh. theatre sets. Sure. And I'd always wanted to do that and I loved it. But I really wanted to be an artist and make that into a job, which mm-hmm. is the tricky bit. And so I was learning etching with my etching guru, Anne, and she said, you just have to really do what you love. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to try. And I made my first set of etchings, um, and they were tadpoles. And I thought, this is probably not going to (laughs) work. I don't think an etching of a tadpole is a particularly marketable thing. Um, Anyway, they sold out. And... Everyone loved the etchings of tadpoles, and quite a few people said to me, you can tell that you love tadpoles, and you've really looked at these things. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Most people think they're just a black blob with a tail, rather than something with an increasing amount of features. Yes, exactly. So I was encouraged. and um, Can I I stop you for one second? For those that don't know what etching is, Ah. I mean, I I do, this is a leading question. Please, could you quickly describe the joys of zinc plates and acid? (laughs) Um, Etching is a type of printmaking where you use a metal plate, a flat piece of metal, and you cover it in wax, scratch into it, and use acid to etch away the metal so that there are grooves, which you then put ink in and print Print in a big printing press. So when I was taught etching, and Mm. this is which sounds sort of very industrial, acid and zinc plates mm. and big presses and that kind of thing. My art teachers always said the best way to get an even bite with the acid was to use bird feathers. Mm. So in our in our art studio, we'd have all of the mechanical, human-made stuff, and then they'd have this massive vat of a uh, massive jar of bird feathers. Yeah, swan feathers, very yeah. good. And you'd waft it, and I was like, this is an amazing juncture. Whether it was tadpoles or whatever else you were etching, like that juncture between organic material yeah. like like the acid and the feather yeah. versus the sort of man-made constructive zinc plate that you put down i've yeah. always sort of loved that sort of weird dichotomy of etching yeah. it looks so brutalist but in actual fact it's gentle and yes. it takes time and yes and as you're saying that you're doing the action of standing <laughs> at a plastic tray full of acid wafting a swan feather and you waft it to get rid of the bubbles mm. so and i know that you've obviously shared that moment when you're just staring and wafting the bubbles away. Do you still do a lot of etching now? Has it did it become? Um, we'll go back to that moment when you're inspired to go off. I haven't. Um, I haven't done any etching since lockdown began, but I will go back to it. I've been really busy 
illustrating stuff, sure. doing my work, my job work. But I have got some very exciting projects lined up. Can you tell me about them at all? We'll, tell, we'll do it at the end. You can tell me about what's coming up. <laughs> okay, so we're, we're at Tadpoles. Where does, how, do, how do Tadpoles head to Svalbard? So, a lady called Jackie, who collects etchings of amphibians, also... She's already my favourite human being in the world. <laughs> she is wonderful. So, this was um, just before data protection came into our lives. And when I sold pictures um, at, I can't remember what exhibition it was, Wildlife Artists in London, um, I sold pictures and they gave me a list of who bought them. Mm -hmm. So I would then look up those people, send them an email saying, I'm so pleased you like my pictures, would you like to be on my list? Mm -hmm. And her email address was at the Natural History Museum. And so I wrote to her and said, um, I'm so pleased that my picture is going to someone who works at the Natural History Museum mm -hmm. because obviously that is um, my spiritual home and I have spent many, many hours of my life just being in there and loving it. And she said, come and see me. And so I went to visit Jackie behind the scenes mm -hmm. and she's in charge of the cryobank, which is where all the freezers are. Mm -hmm. And she showed me around and that's when I realised that through art I could get in places which is interesting because that's what I did at school as well when you're an artist you can sort of slip between the cracks a bit you're kind of slightly out of the rules mm -hmm. like in the art room at school you know the art teachers were never like the other teachers were they yeah I mean I remember sixth form I did art for A level mm. you found yourself in the art room even when you had spare time mm. it, like it wasn't a lesson, it was just somewhere to go. And and whether you were the rugby playing person in the room or the, the geekier mathematical person in the room, you all sort of came together and everything was sort of level pegging. Mm. Um, everyone had their interests within the realms of, of art and mm. whatnot, fine or whatever. But it was a it was a safe space where there was no bullying or scary geography teachers. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And geography teachers are always PE teachers as well. I don't know why that overlaps. <laughs> Anyway. I don't think of geography teachers as scary. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies to any geography teachers who are listening from my class. I've probably said more about my education there than anyone else. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jackie was my gateway scientist. Mm -hmm. And um, I then realised that I definitely wanted to carry on doing nature things. And it made me realise that art, nature and science are in a little Venn diagram together and mm -hmm. that bit in the middle is, is you. where I want to be. <laughs> yeah. You. yeah. You're the little triangle. Yes. Because I'm I'm not a scientist but I want to find out stuff. Did you like science at school? Or was yeah. it anathema, was it? No, okay. I love science. Um but I'm not very good at remembering stuff. Okay. I don't want to retain the details that I just want the finding out bit. Sure. Um and um, I now realise that scientists and artists are very closely related. So, after I sold my tadpole and got to know Jackie... Oh, so I realised that I needed to look at animals more closely, mm -hmm. like I'd been looking at tadpoles. So I became artist-in-residence at Battersea Park Children's Zoo. And in return for being allowed to just hang around at the zoo... They asked me if I would do some workshops with children and families. Sure. And I'd never done anything like that before. And I started off doing just art workshops, just drawing animals. And then I realised that the 
keepers at the zoo are all scientists. Loads of them are zoology students mm-hmm. doing their PhDs on um, incredible animal things that you can't even think of. And they're all specialists with so much knowledge. And um, I had access to all of them. And I got to know them quite well. And um, I began to learn things about the animals, which I hadn't even thought sure. about. Well, like birds having different beaks to eat different things, for instance. Mm-hmm. And why different animals have different fur and feathers to keep them warm, depending on where they live. Can you remember the weirdest thing you learned? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask me that. Sorry, unpredictable. <laughs> no, but I want to show you my emu egg. Go on then, get, get down your emu egg. Oh. There's a bo- there's literally there's two boxes on a top shelf up there. I'm in a, I'm in B's studio, and there's two boxes on a top shelf, both of which say emu eggs. Oh. So how many eggs are in the? Okay, here we go. Oh wow! Look at that. Do you want to hold it? I'd love to hold it. I'm going to have to take a picture as well. It looks like it's sort of a mottled navy blue with sort of lighter sort of. Um, it's got the walls of my old study colour blue underneath. It's two, sort of two-tone mottled blue. It's it's about six inches long, two and a half inches wide. It's beautiful. It's very, very Isn't smooth. It? I remember at, at school, you had to prick one end yeah. and then have a little hole and then you blew out the albumen and so, the yolk. Yeah. Like, so when you blow an emu egg, you have to use um, a screw and a hammer uh-huh, to get so it in, in the first place. And the shape is so good at not making a hole in it um so they don't want baby emus at the zoo sure, sure. so we would blow the emu eggs and then i'm presuming they were unfertilized emu eggs yeah. yeah and then make scrambled eggs for the meerkats to eat okay yeah. did you ever try emu egg omelette i did and i could have done with some salt okay yeah i'm gonna pass that back to you I was always fascinated about why we didn't really eat eggs of bigger animals. And then, so like turkey eggs, for example, like you don't really eat turkey eggs. Really? And I discovered that it is financially less beneficial to eat the eggs than to fertilise said eggs and turn them into real turkeys to sell for Christmas or whatever. Oh, I see. So it is a financial reason that we don't. They also produce smaller clutches. They produce fewer eggs. So to upscale the number of turkey eggs that you would need to make it a viable business, you would need a really large amount of mm. turkeys. I've never tried a turkey egg. The big, probably a bit like the emu egg, I guess. Ah. Not a bit of goose egg? Yeah. How many kinds of birds' eggs have you consumed? Quite a lot. <laughs> okay. Weird. And I've got quite a lot of eggs. Weirdest birds' <laughs> egg have... What is the weirdest bird's egg that have... Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. A rear. Okay. And it's yellow. But eggs fade. That's what I didn't know. Uh-huh. I've got quite a good egg collection and... If you leave them in the light, like this has to stay in its box to keep this colour. Otherwise, mm. it just goes black or brown. Um, loads of colours in nature fade. Are you? I mean, isn't that the beauty of it, though? The fact that there's an impermanence to things, that the living can be so incredibly vibrant and lively, and yet, once dead or removed from the habitat, it will disappear. Yeah. So we need to capture that moment to keep enjoying. And yet, as an artist, you probably know that it's almost impossible to capture the purity of something as wonderful as said emu egg. Yes, but (laughs) you can capture some of the feeling that you get from it, and that's what you can share with other people. There you go. Yeah. Have you drawn slash etched said emu egg? Yes, I've drawn it. I've spent a lot of time trying to get that colour and texture. Have you got it? Have you captured it? Yeah. 
Wonderful. Yeah. Have you got it turned into a Farrow and Bull colour and selling your own <laughs> brand of Von and paints? should be a whole egg colour scale. <laughs> Oh, but it's the the thing that's always pissed me off is uh, I'd like some duck egg blue paint please I mean which duck (laughs) like (laughs) there's loads of different colours of of duck egg blue that you could be choosing from anyway I I digress so you're at the Natural History Museum and you are the conduit you've gone to Battersea Park so you've learnt lots about beaks and eggs and meerkat (laughs) omelettes I have And I met children and families and I was doing my workshops, which started off as art Mm -hmm. and then they just morphed into art and science and I called them nature workshops. And if something's a nature workshop, then it can be art and science Mm -hmm. and you can have scientists and artists in the same room doing stuff. And I had a moment where we were looking at beetles and larvae and eggs and I had about 20 children and some waxworms and I had a big waxworm which is like a sort of giant maggot okay really squishy about as big as your thumb and quite gross and like wiggles around a bit and I held it in my hand and showed the children and they all went gross yuck put it away dirty Mm. horrid And all the parents were just on the benches at the back, looking at their phones, pleased that I was entertaining their children. And then we talked about um, metamorphosis and um, different states that beetles are in and things. And um, by the end, the children were fascinated by the waxworms Mm -hmm. and they held them in their hands and showed their parents. And that was a really good moment. And that was just with children, but I think that that happens with adults as well. Do you think it's harder to get adults enthused? Yeah. yeah. They're too busy on their phones. Yeah. And they're too busy being all adulty. Mm-hmm. But actually... Are you still a child? Yeah. <laughs> Do you think most artists are still children? Yes. Because they have to focus on a feeling of something mm-hmm. and not let it go, which is really, really difficult, I think. Not be distracted by being an adult. Sure. Whilst also being an adult as well. Yeah. It's very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I do my tax returns in crayon. <laughs> but isn't being an actor the same thing? Oh, completely. Kind of. Like, at least with the podcast, I've got some technology that I can pretend I've got <laughs> some kind of skill set going on. Actors just wearing <laughs> tights for a living. Um, oh. So, yeah, so what happens after the Battersea Children's Zoo? After you're inspired so, by inspiring So that's where, others? yeah, that's where I realised that inspiring others and exploring with scientists, good mm-hmm. thing. So then I was at the Natural History Museum and I made some friends in the micropaleontology department. So that means tiny fossils. Mm-hmm. Fossils that you need to look at under the microscope. And, and most fossils are, I would imagine, within that bracket. Most fossils are not skeletons of triceratops. They are... <sighs> tiny little shells they're tiny little shells yeah Yeah. and this is a world I knew nothing about and um, I live in Sussex and we are on chalk Mm. and I use chalk in my work sometimes and I use it in workshops and I never knew that it was made out of tiny fossils and so so funny you should mention that because one of the things I remember from primary school Mm. which was one of the most inspirational things for me was going out collecting a bit of chalk from out, in, out from the Downs where mm. I was in Hampshire, Wiltshire, Border 
and just putting it into acid and then watching it all mm. decay and seeing the little bones and bits and stuff that were left Did behind. You? So that that's always been kind of one of my starting points is that chalk is calcium, is bones, is, yeah. is shells, is all of that. I love that. Yes. Well, I, I never did that at school. I, I kind of feel bad that. when you use it to draw them because they're like, no, yeah. there's the life <laughs> you're putting on that blackboard. Them. Yeah. Well, exactly. Well, that's why I bought this lump of chalk and this picture of some little shapes, which are the foraminifera, which are tiny little organisms um, that are single cells, but they are all of these intricate shapes. Mm -hmm. um, bit like snowflakes. Can I see them? You're going to have to send me a copy of these so I can yeah. put them on the website. Okay. So these are just all sh these are all cells. Yeah. Oh wow. So they look they look They look like they've got all loads of bits. Yeah, they? they look like they're more complicated. They're yeah. a multicellular or cellular organism rather than simply a So they're all of these beautiful shapes which look like vases and mm. snails and you know they it's like being in the conran store yeah it is <laughs> this one i'd like that put it on my wedding list that's el sulcata apiculata anyway. i like ulina lineata which looks like an uh, an original sort of white aubergine yeah so i was let loose in this beautiful room mm. full of thousands and thousands of slides in mahogany drawers and even the slides are beautiful made hundreds of years ago and I realized that I was looking at um, a collection of slides from the Challenger expedition of 1872 mm -hmm. and the Challenger expedition was uh, the Challenger was a ship and she went out to it was a what's it called oceanography expedition mm -hmm. so basically it was artists and scientists going out together as you were saying mm -hmm. to explore the oceans and I started researching the Challenger expedition and there was this picture of the main room inside the Challenger and it was all fitted out with kit for artists and scientists to be working with each other so they had microscopes and drawing boards and that's when I realized I want to go with scientists and explore because I thought that I needed to move on from tadpoles and mice mm -hmm. do a kind of big ticket adventure so I could then sell my tadpoles and mice pictures <laughs> <laughs> um, because when I was at Battersea Zoo talking to children about worms and mice I realised that I was good at engaging people talking about nature sharing the joy and the awe of the world and also that that is a legit job sure yeah. and it's called science communication and it's an actual thing so are you a science communicator sometimes yes <laughs> okay so i thought i want to go on a ship with some scientists and explore the world uh -huh. and i couldn't ever think that that would really happen but i discovered um an organization called the arctic circle who charter a ship, a tall ship with three sails, three masts. And the whole point is for artists and scientists to go out together mm -hmm. and explore the world. To learn from each other, to see yeah. how they view the world and to, to have a cultural exchange thing. Exactly. Okay. A nexus. Is that what it's called? It is now. And when I applied to go on this expedition, I thought that 
I just wanted to do my own project and I didn't really care about what the other people were doing. Mm -hmm. um, but that really changed. And I realised that actually there's an awful lot you can learn from other people. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to go out and explore the world with some scientists and I got a place on the tool ship and I went to Svalbard. How many artists were on it? There were 30 people. Okay. Um, and everyone was doing their own individual project. Sure. There were writers, poets, painters, oh, great. performance artists, sound artists. An amazing How mixture. was this funded? Um, everyone has their own individual funding. Oh, okay. So I had to get that as well. It's really expensive. Is this the, the, the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust? That's is that right. A, is that associated with that? They funded me. Thank you, Winston Churchill. Yeah, yeah. Because Winston Churchill was mad keen on people going out. He wanted to link up the world. He was also a very good artist. Yeah. And he was I, good at many things. I think he won the Nobel Prize for his speech writing. Did he? That's what he won it for. So he's an award-winning writer, painter, also prime minister, depending on what angle you're looking from, extraordinaire, occasional racist. You know, mm. Winston Churchill. Yeah, he was busy, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he wanted people to go out and discover things sure. and then come back and share them with other people. So did you have a project in mind when you left? Was it yes. all, was it the little paleo micro, uh, microology again? What, no, paleo, I, I can't do the word now. <laughs> um, I wanted to, what I really wanted to do was take my printing press and make etchings as far north as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. And So there's an element of theatre to the whole thing yes. too. Okay. Yes, because then I thought it would be a really good story mm -hmm. and an exhibition of the work. So I think that in all of these things, like coming back to your podcasts, really, mm -hmm. it's about storytelling, isn't it? And that's how we can share what we find interesting and make it accessible to other people who may not have been interested in it in the sure. beginning. So you, so you were taking your... This is for etching prints. So you were taking your zinc plates and your waxes and your acids, or were you doing sketches? Were you like that's a lot of kit to take to Svalbard? I know, <laughs> um, and it didn't work out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I wanted to take my printing press. Sure. And I couldn't. It was too heavy. Couldn't take acid on the airplane, and um, yeah. That's the police coming to hold you up for <laughs> lying to the world about taking printing press to the, to the Arctic. So I only found this out um, just before I went that I couldn't do it because sure. it was all quite um, close to the wire time-wise mm -hmm. with the funding and getting These tickets. These things always are, yeah. yeah. Um, so I went to Anne, my printmaking guru, and said, this is all a disaster, I can't do it, it's pointless, why am I even going, I shouldn't go now, I can't take my printing press. And was a bit sort of teenage and foot stompy about it. And Anne told me about a different kind of printmaking called Collagraph, mm -hmm. which is basically when you just use bits of paper and glue them together. And it became apparent that that would be a good thing for me to do. <laughs> okay. And I just thought that it was stupid and I didn't want to do that. And so anyway, I packed some bits of cardboard and off I went. And um, it took everything in a new direction and it was a great way to explore by... If I'd had all my plates and printing press, sure. I would have been all caught up in doing that and not actually... Exploring and yeah. being in... Yeah. How long were you up there for? A month. I guess you're in the summertime, otherwise it'd all be six frozen weeks. over as well? Mm. Okay. Yeah, midsummer. Midsummer, six. So daylight 
all, all the time. The sun just goes round and round. Did you go a bit loopy? Um, more, more loopy? <laughs> <laughs> I was really careful to try and stick to sleeping times uh-huh. because I was by myself. So we went on the ship for two weeks or three weeks and then I was there for a month by myself in Svalbard oh, wow. and I stayed in a hut and um, I did some printmaking. I found the world's most northerly printing press and I made some prints on it. Did you know it was up there? No. So you just happened across an... Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I was on my own in a very weird place and so With I your was... rifle? With... I didn't have my rifle then. Um, I was in town, so I was safe from polar bears. Okay safe as I could be. Are you proud of what you made up there, art-wise? I mean, that's the question. Like, it, it must have been an amazing, an, an amazing experience to be surrounded by like, 24 hours of daylight, a, a whole load of Arctic... And, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, um, it was field work. So I, I'm more proud of kind of what I did, really, sure. of being there. Because it was a really um, daunting prospect to go off by myself to the top of the world and I was you know quite nervous about it as you would be yeah and then you know staying in a heart afraid of polar bears it was great so I couldn't believe I did that um, and, and that's why you wanted to do it again but down south <laughs> yeah so did, was it this deception island you went to yes was it, was it almost immediately afterwards you got home and went quick <laughs> must do some printing down south I need to go polar <laughs> um in Svalbard, I met some scientists um, who were investigating microbial communities. And we got chatting in the pub in Longyearbyen. Mm-hmm. And we were interested in what one another were doing. And that's when I had been working at Battersea Park Zoo. And we, yeah, we were talking about art and science together. And um, when we came back to England, we did a series of workshops for children and families which were art and science based on what we'd been doing in the Arctic the scientists and me doing art so we did those and we worked together and we all really enjoyed it and I think we there was a spark of something that we all knew we could push a bit further and we did things like we put on a um, photographic exhibition in Brick Lane where the scientists um, used their photographs and we turned it into an art exhibition. Oh, that's fun. It was really interesting. So I think it was about a year later, Michelle, head scientist, rang me up and said, would you like to come to Antarctica? <laughs> Can you imagine? It was the best moment. And so I said, yeah, I'd love to come to Antarctica, thanks. Uh-huh. She was going off to Deception Island and one of her research assistants couldn't go because she had to have a root canal, poor yeah. thing. And you're not allowed bad teeth in Antarctica. Yeah, well, like if you had a, an abscess in the Antarctic... Not much you can do. They have to do it... It feels like I've come up with a title for some strange sort of like niche literature. Abscess in the Antarctic. Ooh. Um, so I went off with them to... Shwire, and then we went to Deception Island, which is an active volcano. On it's a, it the, looks like a big old ring. It's kind of amazing. It does, like a croissant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And were you invited by the Spanish army, did I read somewhere? Where does that come into The it? Spanish army have got a permanent base on Deception Island. Okay. Um, and they host scientists who are working there. And That's amazing. 
Yeah. That's the strangest thing I've ever heard. You were in a giant croissant in the Antarctic hosted by the Spanish army, having, meanwhile, a few months earlier just been at Battersea Children's Zoo. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting. That's a hell of a yo-yo. Yeah. And the Spanish army are from Galicia. Uh-huh. They have, it's their training camp for people, for people in the army to do extreme mountain training because it's a really hostile environment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an active volcano, so some bits of the ground are actually boiling, like melt your boot boiling, and bits of steam spurt out, and sometimes the water in the caldera, which is the middle bit of the volcano that's mm-hmm. filled with sea, boils, and it... Um... That's so Spanish, isn't it? <laughs> If you're in the British Army, we need to go and learn how to do some mountain climbing. We'll pop to Snowdon, and there's a train that goes to the top. And a cafe. <laughs> Whereas in the Spanish Army, you go well. Let's go somewhere where the the ground will burn your boots, yeah. and the sea is boiling, and yeah. yet you're in the Antarctic. Yeah, I love this. Yeah, Spanish. boiling and freezing at the same time. <laughs> it was so exciting. It's the most incredible place. So we were researching microbial communities. Uh-huh. So that is basically tiny food chains. Sure. So Deception Island is like a natural lab. Um, and so were you there as a research assistant to help the scientists in yes. this instance, rather than yes. there primarily as an artist? Yes. But with the hope of then coming back and being a science communicator to make what they'd done accessible to others? Yes. Great. And just for my own personal joy. Great. And, and as I understand it, that's basically pretty much that's when the COVID lockdown happened. So just as you were getting into your stride of exploration and becoming... <laughs> an Antarctic dentist. That's sort of when you had to have your sort of ambitions of going next. Exactly. Um, I came back and did lots of talks in schools. So loads of people don't know the difference between the Arctic and the Antarctic. Penguins. Yeah, penguins and polar bears. Loads of teachers don't know. And actually, to be honest, I wasn't entirely certain about all these things. And when you look at a map of Antarctica, mm-hmm. it's massive and yeah. it takes up the whole circle on the bit of paper. Mm-hmm. And it's just incredible. So I thought I'm going to do a book of Arctic and Antarctic, which is which and what's the difference. And so I spent a lot of time working on that. I got my dream agent and we took it to publishers and two of them said yes. And then uh, lockdown came and they said, actually, we're not going to do that now. So I was really disappointed. Well, hopefully Um, some publishers will listen to this and go, we need a we need a North and South (laughs) Pole book. We do, we from do. The, from the science communicator slash artist slash explorer. Yes, but I have a new book now. I've got over my disappointment. Okay, what's the new book? It's about seaweed. Oh, great. Yeah. Seaweed. And the mini lives that live upon it, or just the yeah. weed itself? The mini lives, the giant lives. Have you ever seen sugar kelp? I've, I've swam through a kelp forest. Is that sugar kelp, or are there just loads of kelps? I don't know. I don't know how many kelps there be. But it's funny stuff, isn't it? Isn't it? It's like sort of almost gelatinous yeah. and slimy. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Mm. And yet again, it's, it is a forest. Like it harbours a whole load of different kind of species, whether it's fish or, or uh, crustaceans, mollusks. Absolutely. Yeah. And there are seagrass meadows uh-huh. with spiny seahorses in them. Okay, so this sort of leads me on to my, one of my three questions that I ask everybody. Oh, yeah. Which is, if you could go for a walk or a swim anywhere in the <laughs> world right now, where would it be? Where would your next adventure be? Oh, I didn't know it could be a swim. <laughs> well, lockdown made me look to where I am rather than further afield. And I thought that my next adventure should be in the UK. So last summer I went as far north as I could go to mm-hmm. Ariskay 
and as far south to Cornwall and started investigating seaweed. And I think that I would like to go back to Scotland and those islands are so near to where we live Mm -hmm. and so different to here. One of, one of my most recent favourite facts is that the British archipelago, so all of the little islands, all of, all, of, all of what makes up the British Isles, there are more land masses within that grouping than in the Bahamas. Oh, there. So in terms of the different sort of environments that you could experience, mm. the, the world's your oyster. Mm. Potentially, <laughs> literally. <laughs> There's some interesting things with oysters going on. Mm. Um, but going for a walk, I'd just like to be here. Okay. On the Downs. On the South Downs. Yeah, that's my favourite place to walk. Which is the most recent national park. Mm. Decade old now, but maybe we should have a new one. Or maybe not. Maybe the, I, the South Downs, it's, I don't really know very well. I know the walk from Lewis to Brighton very, very well, because we used to do a pub call. Which did that. <laughs> I'm doing that tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. <laughs> um, second question. Who is your natural history hero? Well, I've been thinking about that. And I think that it's Gerald Durrell. Oh, great. Okay, Why? Because his writing is what really inspired me as, not a child, as a kind of adolescent. Mm -hmm. For those who don't know, he wrote My Family and Other Animals and and other books. And he just gave joyous accounts of loving nature Mm -hmm. and investigating it. And I think that his kind of, his mixture of, science and nature is art and his writing's wonderful and I think he kind of really was important in my um artistic journey have you been out to is it Guernsey you no I haven't no I'd love to go there's I think I want to say there's the Gerald Durrell Zoo there or something yeah yeah I'll, I'll add it to my list yeah um yeah well, you probably would need to take an artist with you. Well, definitely. Or a science communicator or an explorer. Yeah. I don't suppose you know anyone who could epitomise all those three. <laughs> um, do you see yourself as a bit like Gerald Durrell, or was that saying a bit too much in terms of an artistic version of, of telling small stories in an interesting, accessible manner? Yeah, I think that's a good aim, isn't it? I'd it's like aim. to be like him. I'd like to be like him. I mean... Also, it would be nice to be on a hot island rather than a cold <laughs> island. <laughs> I was talking to um, an underwater photographer who would go, and he was down in, in the Antarctic, would take photos of underwater creatures, but just wearing a wetsuit, not even a dry suit. And he sort of got off, not got off, that's probably too strong a word, but he enjoyed the Oh, you're the making cold. me shiver. They made it something. <laughs> I saw a picture of you on Instagram at a, at a farm near here, still wearing your Canada Goose Arctic wear. Yeah. And I'm going, hmm. I know. I don't like being cold. Yeah, for someone who explores seem... both poles, that's a little no. strange. I just feel drawn to kind of hostile environments for some reason. <laughs> but it's the kind of mini adventure of um, of being able to be okay in a difficult position yeah. that I love. Having the right kit and surviving. It's okay. great. Uh, survival gear aside, in terms of warm stuff, what's the most what's the essential luxury that you would have? I'm turning into desert island discs, unfortunately here, but like, what's the one thing that you would need alongside your warm clothes and your water supply and your a thermal vest and a pencil is all you need, really. That's all you need. Yeah. Final question: um, If you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? Can it be plants? Mm-hmm. It's a species. It could be anything. Well. Have you done that walk from Lyme Regis to Beer along mm-hmm. that bit of coast? And you know where there's that path on the cliff and 
it feels like you're in Jurassic mm-hmm. times. There are kind of swamps and those big mare's tails. Sure. Um, I would like to bring all those plants back and I would love to walk through a kind of Jurassic swamp. Like a megaflora swamp. Yeah, kind of thing. with those massive dragonflies and things. So, like dragonflies are vicious. I mean, dragonflies kill more creatures. Like, like in terms of the amount of deaths and destruction that they cause, I think they're the most dangerous creature on the planet. Are they? Like, because they just they just go off and kill. Like, they they they're vicious. Like, I love that. Like, killer whales are fairly sort of indiscriminate with what they kill, but they don't kill a huge amount. Whereas dragonflies are just relentless and very well formed killers. So, a Jurassic-sized dragonfly. I'm sure paleontologists are going to write in and say, I think you find that dragonflies weren't during the Jurassic period. Sorry, I don't know. This is an accessible populist podcast. Um, yeah, I, I think Amateurs. more than anything else, I would be terrified of being somewhere with giant dragonflies. But you'd be invisible. <laughs> okay, well, that's fine. That's fine. I am invisible. So yeah, that's, that's no problem. Fine. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, so you're bringing back some megaflora to go through an amazing forest. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I hope on your walk... <laughs> Uh, your invisibility doesn't run out and you don't get completely devoured no, by it won't. the giant dragonfly. <laughs> B, thank you very much. That's fantastic. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. I certainly have. I have too. Thanks very much. <laughs> And that was the glorious Beatrice von Preussen. For examples of her wonderful work and photographs of all that we spoke about, head to our website, treesacrowd.fm, where you will also find links to Bee's website and social media streams, etc. Even her shop. Hmm. Also, in the interests of science communication and making nature accessible and fun, we are now seven days plus, depending on when you're listening to this, into the Wildlife Trust's 30 Days Wild, where they implore you, where I implore you, and where I presume Beatrice would implore you to get out and about to explore our wild world for the 30 days of June. Now, we will be back in a month with a very special episode recorded on one of the many islands on the British archipelago. But if you need more from me before then, well, then there's about 100 episodes in our back catalogue, bonus episodes available on our Patreon account. And as part of the 30 Days Wild, myself and Sophie Pavel will be hosting the Big Wild Quiz on Sunday, the 19th of June. So hopefully we will see you all there. Until then. Bye bye for now. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.